These four weeks in March are setting the stage for Good Friday and Easter in a far more comprehensive way than I think I've ever done before. Uh, And I'm excited about it. I'm kind of geeking out about it right now because um, I'm a pastor and I spend all my time doing that. And so it's like really important to me, right? Uh, But so much about Jesus and, and the gospel accounts, there's so much that we cannot appreciate apart from a working knowledge of the Old Testament. And so Jesus would say in John 5, 39, he would say this really strange thing. He said to the, to the religious leaders, you guys search the scriptures every day. You go home and read your Bible every day because you think that in that you're going to find life, but I'm telling you that that's the thing that testifies about me. So you're missing the true life. You're missing me because you're, you're looking at all these rules and regulations and trying to figure that all out. You're missing the big picture, right? And so Jesus is pointing us to the Old Testament to say, everything in the Old Testament is essentially about Jesus. Which, I mean, you, you track that down to the minutiae. We do like a study on the tabernacle, a study on typology and all those things which we really won't have a chance to get into in the month of March. But, but suffice it to say, you take the whole Old Testament and you just say it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus. Um, Colossians 2, Paul would say it this way, Colossians two sixteen and 17. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you with questions regarding food and drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath. Those things are all shadows of that which is to come. But the substance, the thing casting the shadow is Jesus. He's the substance. Those things are all shadows. They're all just um, archetypes of Jesus. Jesus is the real thing, right? And you have Jesus, so don't get hung up on that stuff. Uh, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 5, says something very similar. He says, they, the Levitical priesthood, he says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was going to build the tabernacle, he was instructed by God who said, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses is there on the mountain. God's there. Moses views heaven, and he sees the tabernacle in heaven. And God says, now I want you to build a replica according to that pattern. So there's a reality here that these things are just a shadow. They just point us to Jesus, right? So if you were going to have a perspective on the Bible as a whole, and this is a a little bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's true. The Old Testament is really about a nation. This is God's redemptive working through a nation, a people he calls Israel, right? And then the New Testament is about a person, the redemptive working of God through the person of Jesus, does that make sense? So, so it helps some of the context when you study the Old Testament. Go, God's focused on using a nation of people here to deliver a message, and then the message is delivered through the person, Jesus. And so the, the New Testament is in the Old Testament, but it's concealed. It's hidden. It's alluded to. It's hinted at. It's never fully unpacked. There are all these religious ceremonies and, and all, all this stuff that happens that never has its fulfillment. And you get to the end of Malachi and you go, wait, there's got to be more. And then there's this 400-year period of silence. And then the more comes. And the fullness of that comes. So, so the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed or hidden. And then the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. It's unpacked. It's explained. It's given the fullness of its meaning and intent. Right? And so I don't know if that helps you guys at all. Paul, Paul says in Ephesians 2, all this is intro, by the way. <laughs> 
All this is just setting up the next four weeks. Um, Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says the mystery's been revealed. In fact, I'll read, I'll read into chapter 3. This is not even our primary text today, but I couldn't help it. Uh, Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one. That's the Jews and the Gentiles. He's made us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. He wants to make one so by making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and therefore killing hostility. It says, and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near and through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father So you're no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom that whole structure is joined together and built up and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. He says, for this reason, because of all of that, Paul can be a little wordy. I think that might have been like one sentence even, right? Because of all of that, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, here it is, there's this mystery, that was made known to me by revelation as I have written to you briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here it is. This is the payoff. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's crazy. That's crazy. What I want for us as we run up to Easter this year is to take a good look at the Old Testament and the prophecies there about Jesus so that we more fully appreciate what we see in the New Testament, especially the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, his death, his burial and resurrection. Um, so, so the three texts, three main texts this morning, and if you have the Version app, you know that the, in the events section there are my notes uh, for you this morning. If, uh, we, we don't print anything because we're poor and we can't afford the paper. Uh, but if you have a mobile device, you want to go to the Version, go to events, go to Emmaus Road, today's date, and you'll have access to the, to the program today. So uh, three main texts this morning are Genesis 3, presenting the problem, Isaiah 25, 8 will give us the promise, and Psalm 16 will show us the solution. So let's go to Genesis 3, and I'm going to read you the whole chapter, and uh, we'll have some running commentary here along the way. It's a pretty, it's a, I don't know, we were just talking, John and I were talking about watching Les Miserables, and you go, wow, that's an intense drama and epic story, and then you read Genesis 3 and go, Hugo, you know, Victor Hugo had nothing on just like the opening chapters of the book of the Bible. You know, it's just crazy how much drama is happening here. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? Which, by the way, if you have a question about a church or a, or a teacher in, in uh, any circle at all, if you hear that manifested again and again and again from, from any given teacher, what, did God really mean this? Did he really say that? Run. 
run, okay? Because that's like the oldest lie. It's right here in the text. That's the first one, right? Did, did God really say, I'm calling into question God's goodness and his word. Did God really say you should not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Just stop for a second. I know I've made this point before, but I need to make it again. But for years as a Christian growing up in church, I had this idea that Eve was there with the serpent and it's like, where's Adam? Adam, you're building the panic moment in the movie version of Genesis 3 and it's like, he's not there. Where is he? Where is he? All right, and she's taking the fruit and there he is like two hills over, like a half mile and he's topping the hill. He's like, no, slow motion, he's running, he's trying to get there, he's, he's trying to intervene. But that's not what the text says at all. As he's just standing right there. He's, he's standing right there in silence. He's totally abdicating his role as protector in that moment. And she took it, she ate, and then she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate, standing right there. And the eyes of both were open, and then they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Now, God knew where he was. Please, don't, don't read into that. Like, God doesn't know things. He knows. He, what he's doing is what he does with each one of us. He's giving us a chance to own our sin because he's gracious. He says, hey, where are you? Verse 10, and Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, yes, Lord, I repent. (laughs) Oh, that he would have said that. But he did what all of us as his sons have done ever since. He passed the buck. Look what he says. The woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. So God says, all right, buddy, stay right there. I'll come back to you. You stand there and be quiet. The Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman says, hmm, well, I just saw my federal head pass the buck. That seems like a really good strategy. I think I'll try that. Well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. All right, you stand there with your husband, you be quiet, I'll come back to you. Verse 14, and the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. There's the key verse, verse 15, and I shall put enmity, strife, hatred, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise, actually the word better translated, crush your head, and you shall strike or bruise his heel. That's a a prophecy, by the way. We'll come back to it. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. On behalf of all men everywhere, ladies, we apologize. 
for just totally screwing this deal up. Um, your desire shall be for your husband or contrary to your husband, she, he shall rule over you. That's not sexual desire. That's a desire for his position of headship because guys are turkeys, our track records are awful and you know that we fail and so your desire is gonna be to step in and usurp leadership because you know that we, we're, we make mistakes and we screw up. And to Adam, he said this, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So guys, guess what? Everything we do, everything we labor in is that much harder. Twice, three times as difficult to yield half the results and half the fruit that we would have gotten otherwise. We labor that much more to get that much less. And it's even harder at home. It's even harder at home in the relationships with the people God's given us to steward. It's hard. And our, and our, and our tendency, because it's hard, is to do what Adam did and to abdicate, right? I'm, I'm gonna just table the whole sermon on it's all about Jesus and just talk about marriage relationships for the next 30 minutes, right? But we could do that. We could do that. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. That's important. Something had to die. Blood had to be shed. And then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever Therefore, the Lord God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So in this first text, right, we have, we have, the, pro, we have the problem. Creation, uh, the created order from the beginning of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 was God is the authority over everything. He's the king of the universe. He's the authority. Everyone else and everything else is underneath that authority. And then God created man and he made him vice regent. That's a term that means it's just like a governor, right? And he assigned him over the earth and he said, I want you to, to govern and steward and care for this planet and I've made you in my image and so you're my representative you're the governor here I'm still the king you're under my authority but you have authority over this and take take dominion and and put it set it in order and steward it well and then when we get to chapter three what happens the the vice regent are handing over the keys to the enemy They've, they believe the lie of the devil and they've come under his authority and they've, they've, for, they've just forsaken God. And they said, we, we want to be like God. What we really want to do is we want to we take God's authority and we want to move him down here and we want to put us on top. We'll be the ones who decide what is good and what is right and what is evil and what is wrong and God will serve us. And we, we flipped the created order in the fall. We flipped it upside down. And man has now assumed the position of God and attempting to usurp his authority and not only knowing good and evil, but determining what good and evil are. And so the curse, right, here in Genesis 3 is the first mention, we call it the proto-evangelion. It's the first mention of the gospel anywhere in the scriptures. Go back and look at 15, the seed of the woman. I'll put enmity between 
your seed and her seed. He's speaking to the serpent. And her seed will crush your head and your seed will bruise his heel. You'll be able to strike at him and wound him, but he will forever crush you and defeat you. And, and you go, well, that's, that sounds like Jesus and Satan and the cross and that whole deal. Well, let me just lock it in for you because the seed of the woman is a biological impossibility. I mean, we're just purely biological. We're talking about the seed is in the man, the egg is in the woman. So what does this mean? What's well, a reference to the virgin birth right there in Genesis 3, right? This is the proto-evangelion, a prophecy of Jesus being born of a virgin. And so theologians will talk about the scarlet thread, right? This, you can track Jesus through the pages of scripture all the way up to the gospels. This is where it starts in Genesis 3. So the problem is that sin is a capital offense, Sin is a capital offense. Blood must be shed for sin to be covered. Those fig leaves that they made for themselves were not enough. Just, just as an aside, though, it's always interesting to me that Adam and Eve, uh, having never procreated at this point, somehow knew to cover their reproductive organs. As if to very deliberately say that they were, one, now ashamed of their nakedness, and two, that they knew that this would be impactful for all human beings that followed as a result of their procreation. What they had done was going to impact all of humanity. That, that is intriguing to me that they, they chose to cover that part of their body. That is to say, I think that uh, there needed to be a covering and atoning that they understood at some level there needed to be an atoning for the whole of humanity that was in Adam, that was in Adam. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's, let's transition to our second text in Isaiah. So we're going to go roughly 3,300 years from Genesis You got the whole story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his 12 sons and the promised land campaign which failed and Joshua and the the book of Judges and then Samuel is the last judge. You get first and second Samuel and then you got the reign of King Saul who was man's king. They demanded a king, right? And then God brought David on the scene and then David died and Solomon, his son, took over and then Solomon's two boneheaded kids split the kingdom up, right? And so you you, you get all the way this series of mostly bad kings in both kingdoms, although Judah in the south fared better than Israel in the north. And then you get to this guy named Isaiah. Isaiah was a palace official in Judah, and he was under King Uzziah, and then he also was under Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. So he had he spanned like four different kings. And he was, uh, he was fearless. He was always rebuking the sins of the people and continually warning them to trust God and depend on him rather than trusting in foreign powers and making alliances with other nations, right? So you, just read all those chapters in Isaiah that just go on and on. But I want us to look at Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, because this prophecy is really important to Easter as we move forward. Isaiah says, On this mountain, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So look at that promise. He will swallow up death forever. 
This is God's provision of a savior. And we know from reading the text of the Bible that that savior had to be 100% human. He had to be fully man because he had to atone for the sins of man. But he also had to be 100% God. He had to be 100% divine. And so we talk about at Christmas time mainly the necessity of a virgin birth, much to the chagrin of teachers like Rob Bell and other false teachers who say that's not important. Uh, well, yeah, it is important because if he's not virgin born, he's not God, right? He's, he's the product of a relationship between Mary and somebody else that we don't know, and he's just a human being, and he cannot atone for the sins of humanity. And we talk about Christ's sinlessness. And, and I love that Ethan, my, my second son, got to spend the summer last summer at camp as a staff and uh, help kids and, and do all kind of adventurous things, but having this conversation, the, the things that camp staff talk about late into the night and conversations about theology and when a bunch of teens and 20-somethings get together and talk and they're having this conversation about, well, did Jesus have to be sinless? Could, could Jesus have sinned and then prayed and, and uh, been forgiven of the sin and still atone for us? And I was so alarmed to hear that there were kids going, yeah, yeah, I think that's possible. And Ethan's just like, ah. he's, you know, just coming out of his skin going, oh, please, no, don't believe that, right? Because Jesus, uh, would it have been a big deal if Jesus had sinned? The answer is yes. Yes, it would have been a big deal. There would be no sacrifice available to us if he had sinned at all. Right? In fact, the propitiation that Jesus buys for us, he, he's the atoning sacrifice, um, had to be an offering without blemish, without spot, without any fault any, anywhere whatsoever. Right? And so that sacrifice has to assuage and satisfy the wrath of God. God's wrath is a real thing, by the way. Right? Even though we don't like to talk about it in 21st century America, God still has wrath and it's coming. And so we need a sacrifice that meets that payment, that pays that uh, debt of sin so that we are not experiencing the wrath of God. And so now we have the promise to destroy death forever. We have this promise in Isaiah. Right? So we have the problem. We have the promise. Let's go back to King David in the Psalms to get the. Uh, the uh, the next piece of our puzzle here. We have the, the promise to destroy death. Um, when the kingdom was divided, before the kingdom was divided, David ruled. Uh, it says it was a man after God's own heart, and he sinned greatly. David did. He screwed up. But the thing about being a man after God's own heart is not being sinless. It's when you sin, owning it. Right? Not passing the buck like our first father Adam, but saying, God, you're right. I'm sorry. And that's Psalm 51. If you want a great example of somebody owning it and being a man after God's own heart, that's a great psalm. David was a ferocious warrior and a gifted poet. Guys, pay attention. He wrote poetry. And he sang and he played a harp. Okay, we go, those are all girly things. Dude, he would kick all your fannies in a fight with one hand tied behind his back. He was a man and a warrior and he wrote poetry and he played a harp. Just get over it. That, that means you got to sing in church, dudes. Sing in church. That's what that means. Sing loud. Even if you sing terrible, I just did a men's event Friday night. I told the guys, I said, sing loud. Even if you sing bad, sing loud. Because the, the women and the kids need to see like men worshiping Jesus. Even if you can't sing, just sing loud. But David penned Psalm 16, among other Psalms. Look at verses 7 to 10 in Psalm 16. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord before me always because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, the immediate application is David writing about himself, but we know that that also applies directly to David's descendant, the son of David, the Messiah, right? Not abandoned to Sheol, the place of the dead, the promise of a resurrection. I'm not going to leave you there. I will resurrect you. Contextually, this is applied only to Jesus in terms of the prophecy because he's the first resurrection. He's the first fruits, right? So how does this benefit us that God would raise Jesus from the dead? Trace the progression with me. Sin enters the world through our first parents and we're now born fallen with a sin nature and we all act on that sin nature and become transgressors of God's law. And the result of all this is that we deserve death and hell and punishment forever. And as we follow that scarlet thread that weaves through redemptive history and the narrative of scripture, we find this astounding promise that God's going to destroy death at some point and then defeat and overthrow and overcome the cords that bind us, that constrain us, death, right? That constrains all of humanity. He's going to cut those cords away and release us. And then you step back a few hundred years and you find the warrior poet King David had prophetically uttered the solution that the Holy One, who's not David, the Holy One, which is not plural but singular, Jesus the Messiah, son of David, would not be abandoned to Sheol, the place of the dead, and would not see decay, would not be corrupted. That's the ancient Jewish way of saying that this coming Holy One would be raised from the dead and resurrected because it would be unjust of God to leave him there, having never sinned, having only lived a perfect life and atoning for the sins of others. And so what we need to wrestle with is this concept of federal headship. We need to wrestle with federal headship because you go back just to the birth of the nation Israel, the Jews in the Bible commonly referred to as Israel. Well, where did they get that name? See, Abraham had two sons at first, Ishmael and Isaac, and then he had others later, right? But Isaac was chosen by God to carry the promise. And then Isaac had two kids, Esau and Jacob. But Jacob was chosen to carry the promise. And then Jacob's name, which means heel grabber or usurper or deceiver, is changed to Israel, which means prince of God. And all of his descendants are commonly now referred to by their forebearer's name. That's a very common thing. So you're an Israelite. They say collectively, Israel, that's Israel, right? Even though Israel was a person, the nation now goes by that name because he's kind of the, the head. They're under the federal headship of Israel, right? And this is really common. The, the Edomites were called Esau in probably a half a dozen places in the Old Testament. Speaking of Esau, not the person, but the nation of Edom, were his descendants, right? And so this is really common in the Old Testament talking about federal headship. So so we're either, we're all born in Adam. We're all human beings. Adam's our first father. He's the federal head of humanity. But when we come to Christ, we're now in Christ. Christ is our federal head. We've, we've departed from the federal headship of Adam. We're still humans, by the way. (laughs) We don't stop being humans, but now we're under the headship of Christ and we're in Christ. Christ. That's why the Bible uses that language of being in Christ, in Adam, right? That's this important language. And so now we have the solution. Now we have the solution. The God-man Jesus Christ was and is the propitiation for all mankind. His atoning sacrifice was sufficient to save every man, woman, boy, and girl, though not all receive that gift by faith. 
and that's their choice. But his propitiation is sufficient. Please don't miss that. Don't miss that. And we get this double imputation. That means there are two things that happen when we come to Christ. We give up some stuff and we get some stuff in return, right? We give up our sin. God grants us forgiveness. We repent. We give up our sin because in Christ, we stand as one who has never transgressed or violated God's perfect standard of righteousness. We're now federally, under the federal headship of Jesus, his righteousness, right? He never violated and he never broke God's law, never. And so his passive obedience, having never broken the law, grants us our forgiveness, Now, it's like we've never sinned. That's what justified means, just as if I'd never sinned, right? We're justified because of Christ's passive obedience. He never broke the law. But he also didn't just never break the law. I know that's terrible grammar, but he only ever perfectly kept the law. That's active obedience. Not just passive obedience, but active obedience. And because of the active obedience, having perfectly kept God's law in every statute and every way, we are now granted perfect righteousness and holiness. That's imputed to us. It's, it's credited to our account because of what Christ did. That's so awesome. Because if we'd only gotten the imputation of forgiveness and justification, like the next breath, we'd be in the deficit again, right? But we didn't just get that. We got the imputation of holiness and righteousness. That's amazing. That's awesome. So even though sin, every even only one single sin, right, is a capital offense because it's a violation of a perfectly holy and innocent being, God. But because of what Christ has done, God can be just. He can be just. He can see that justice is done upon sin rightly and that his righteous wrath is carried out. The wrath of God was borne by Jesus on the cross as our propitiation. So God's justice is still meted out on all humanity. For those who stand in Christ, federal headship, and in his righteousness by faith, Christ has already taken the wrath of God for us. And for those who do not place their faith in Jesus, they will stand before God and receive his wrath on themselves when they die and stand in judgment. But not only does God remain the just one, he's also the gracious one who justifies many. And he can pardon the sins of those who put their faith in Jesus. And so in Jesus, both mercy and justice are satisfied. And you go, so what? So what does that mean? Why does this matter? We're working towards Easter. What's the point? Well, to put it quite simply, God knows the future. And this is the takeaway as we move towards Easter. God is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. God knew, and he knows tomorrow fully and completely. And he's already there. He's, that'll blow your mind. Think about that for a little while. He's already tomorrow and a year from now and 100 years ago. He's transcendent. And this is the God who regularly through his prophets, especially Isaiah, would challenge the idols and so-called gods of the nations to take counsel to see who among them could tell me the things that are yet to come. Who can tell me the things that are coming to pass? Because he alone knows the future. He alone foretells it with 100% accuracy. And that's this imprimatur on the text. It's a Latin phrase that means it's his stamp of approval. Just like a king was going to send a letter and he'd put his signet in the wax and seal it to prove that it was him, God's imprimatur on the text is prophecy because it proves that he wrote it because he's the only one who knows what's going to happen. He's the only one, right? And he knows it perfectly and he's never wrong. That, that means Easter's not an afterthought. 
Easter's not the plan B backup like, oh man, I didn't know it was going to get this bad. What are we going to do? Crucifying the Son of God was not the secondary backup plan in case nothing else worked. This was the agreed upon plan within the Godhead from the beginning and it was prophesied in pieces and chunks all through the Old Testament. He will crush the serpent's head. So I'll just leave you with this thought that I tell every class uh, I teach on prophecy and teach on uh, Bibliology 101, kind of what is the Bible and how do we get it? And I say over 1,800 times, that book in your lap claims to be the very words of God. No other holy book, in quotes, right? I say holy because none of them are, because only God is. No other holy book even comes close to making that claim about itself. It claims to predict the future and to this day has only ever shown itself to be 100% accurate in its predictions. And so here's what you got to do. You got to wrestle with the implications. It either is what it says it is or it's not what it says it is. And that's, those are your only choices. It either is what it claims to be, which is the very word of a holy God who loves us and who's made a way for humanity to be saved, or it is not what it claims to be. And if it's not what it claims to be, you need to go home and you need to rip all the pages out and burn them and shred it and just bury it somewhere because it's a, it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. A book that would claim to be God's word 1,800 times and is not is a lie from hell and should be burned. But if it is what it claims to be, you should, you must submit your life to it and study it and know it and obey it. Please don't do God the disservice and the uh, insult of letting it sit somewhere in your house and gather dust. It's his word. This is word. Three more Sundays until Easter. Oh man. Three more Sundays until Easter. And I'm going to prove to you again and again that this is a supernatural book written by God. And my question to you is, what are you going to do with that information? Does that excite you? The thought of being in Christ and under his federal headship excite you? Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm so excited I want to go home and just stay home and uh, not tell people about Jesus. Well, okay, all right. Can I just push you a little further beyond that? Can I just be excited about Jesus and the fact that God's been orchestrating events all through human history to make sure that the message of the gospel gets to all people? Can, can we just get excited about that and that he's, he's chosen us to be part of the process, Right? So get excited about God's word, excited about that information. Don't let it just stay cerebral, right? Let it move to your heart, from the head to the heart. We started with that song very intentionally. Let it move from the head to the heart and drive you to obedience and drive you to action this week. Lord, I pray that you would do that for us. I pray that you would move these truths. We get excited. We go, man, that is so cool. Your word is so good. You you know what you're doing. (laughs) That's awesome. And Lord, don't let it just stay there. Don't let it stay in that place. Let it move us. Let it compel us. Let it change us, Lord, and drive us to the place where we're talking about you with people. Father, I just ask you for divine appointments this week. I ask you for uh, people with the, your people to have the unction and the, just the, the prodding of the Spirit. If you need to prod us with a sharp object, do it. Move us to the place of telling people about you, being excited about you, loving you. How you moved us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Lord, you get us stirred up about that reality. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.